Welcome to my fifth episode of Crash Course on the Gaza War. Um, This one is with a guest who's coming from a fairly different perspective to my other interviewees in this series so far. Um, Ben Judah works for the Atlantic Council, which is a NATO-aligned think tank. And if you look up his recent articles in Unheard or the Jewish Chronicle or the Evening Standard, um, you'll see his writing since October the 7th has a lot in common with analyses from a more mainstream liberal Zionist perspective um, than you would have heard in previous episodes on this show. And that meant I had initially envisioned this conversation as being a bit of a debate. But talking to Ben before the interview, he said he'd prefer to talk more from the perspective of an analyst of diplomatic relations than someone with strong personal opinions about Israel or Palestine, which I thought was fair enough. And so instead of interviewing Ben as someone with a different set of views to me, I interviewed him as someone with a very different set of contacts to me. Ben is very much an insider in American policymaking circles. His job at the Atlantic Council is currently based in Washington, D.C. And when we spoke, he'd very recently returned from a diplomatic conference in Saudi Arabia. So this was a pretty unique chance for me to get a proper grasp of the perspective of the Americans and their allies, or at least what they tell policy experts they are, when it comes to the Gaza war. As you'll hear, Ben is an articulate guy with a lot of interesting insights, so I'm very grateful he gave me his time for this conversation. The interview was recorded on the 9th of November. I probably should have got it out a little bit quicker, um, but this, of course, is a fast-moving situation, and I'm confident um, the analysis all still holds up. You're listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker, to support the podcast. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That's patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Supporters will get a longer version of this episode than the one on the free feed. So if you're on the free feed and you find yourself wanting more, I sincerely hope you do um, head over to Patreon where you can subscribe for three pound a month. It's our supporters that make this podcast possible. So thank you. Ben Judah, thank you so much for joining me on Crash Course. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to get, I suppose, begin with your perspective on what America are thinking about this war and the White House's view on the Gaza war, and I suppose especially Israel's handling on it. And from conversations you're having, I mean, how are they? How are they looking at the Gaza war? I really want to begin by stressing how shocked the White House was by the events on October the 7th and what it revealed about the Middle East. If you had kind of been in Washington in the weeks running up to the that terrible morning, you might have come across Jake Sullivan at a major event saying how calm the Middle East was at the current moment, how unprecedentedly calm it was. You might have even seen an early draft of his essay for Foreign Affairs submitted just before the uh, eruption of violence, in which he again said how calm the uh, Middle East was. And if you've been in kind of briefings or in uh, conversations with the NSC, there was a sense that there were a lot of problems in the world, a lot of problems that America and Europe needs to be working on together. But an eruption of uh, violence in Israel-Palestine, uh, potentially sucking in uh, some of its neighbours, was not something that was 
on the agenda or seen as an imminent risk. And this comes back to some quite fundamental ways that not only the administration, not only Jake Sullivan, not only Joe Biden, but really the Democratic Party has come to see the world since Obama and how those were really blown open on October the 7th. And how had the world, how had the US come to see or the Democratic establishment come to see world politics during the period of Obama? Obama comes to power, assembles a young foreign policy team and looks at what he views as the disasters of the Bush administration and tries to come up with a new grand strategy, a new set of geopolitical principles to help navigate the world better. One of those principles is that America puts too much stock on certain old alliances and needs to stop seeing the world in terms of friends and enemies in that binary. It needs to have a lot more partnerships in between those two categories. And the way to turn what have been seen as enemies into partners is to give them a stake in the international system that they won't want to lose. And that had been applied to the Middle East really by the Democratic Party in its two tenures. And that involved downgrading Israel and Saudi Arabia somewhat, just a little bit in terms of their proximity to the White House and how they were being kind of handled by various presidents, especially under Obama. And it involved doing something that both of those powers really hated, which were nuclear talks with Iran, trying to bring Iran into the fold by giving it something to lose, by bringing it to a certain extent into the into the world economy. And that sort of broader view that you can entice people in, you can bring people in, also extended to various non-state, non-state actors like Hamas and Hezbollah in Lebanon. The idea was, and the policy was, towards both of those, that if slowly, slowly we try and give them little access points to the international system and the international economy, then they can be tamed and they can become partners, not just for the United States, but for, for Israel eventually. And you see that in a policy towards Hezbollah, which involved de- Israel demarcating its border with Lebanon as far as kind of gas extraction was concerned. And you see a policy towards Hamas, which Israel and the United States are working on together, which sees the group receive payments via Qatar in order to begin building an economy and focusing on life in the Gaza Strip and the policy of beginning to open up the Israeli economy, open up the wall around uh, Gaza to kind of work permits uh, for kind of workers to come from, you know, sort of Khan Yunis and Gaza City to work in to work in Israel. What happened on October the 7th really just kind of blew that conception apart because it showed that the Middle East was not what they thought it was. The Middle East, rather than being calm, was actually a lot more dangerous than they had calculated on. Israel wasn't what they thought it was. Israel was far more dysfunctional, poorly governed, badly badly defended, and wasn't this high-tech security superpower that a lot of that strategy is simply assumed. And that not only Hamas, but also its allies in Iran and in Yemen and in Lebanon, in fact, took their vision of overthrowing the order in the Middle East and striking against Israel far more seriously 
than any work permits or perceived stakes in what the Americans could offer them. And let's move ourselves up to this present war and America's role in it. So from my interpretation and my understanding, for basically the first four weeks of the war, America said, look, this is Israel's 9-11. You essentially have our unconditional support. I mean, Biden did go to, to Israel and sort of say, you need to learn from our experience from 9-11 and not necessarily lash out. But while he was saying those words, he was pushing through a 15 billion aid deal for Israel. Here, the spokesperson for the National Security Council, so John Kirby, was saying there are no red lines whatsoever on Israel. And this is all in a period where, you know, Israel has bombed hospitals and ambulances and 10,000 people have lost their lives. And it seems to me that the Americans said, look, they're an ally. They've had a difficult experience on October the 7th. They can do what they want. Do you think that is a fair analysis of the first four weeks of, uh, of the war? The calculation that the White House had was, you know, really trying to go draw from history and to draw in particular the experience of Henry Kissinger, who hovers not only sort of physically, but also like a sort of intellectual ghost over how Washington prosecutes its foreign policy in the Middle East. And Kissinger really had two key insights towards the region. The first was that any deal between Israel and an Arab country is basically a deal between that Arab country and the United States. And that if we want to stabilize the region, make it secure Israel and just remove this area from being a major source of chaos and conflict that can undermine the United States, the United States is going to have to try and make these, these deals when it can. And that was Kissinger's insight during the 1973 war, which is that he could make a deal with the, between Egypt and the United States to remove that country from the Soviet bloc, give it better terms, give it a large eventually a large subsidy bucket for its military as part of making peace with Israel. So it was Kissinger's first insights, which the United States was pursuing in that deal with Saudi Arabia. And then when war broke out, it's been applying a different set of observations from Kissinger, which is how to work with Israel in, in a conflict. So Kissinger found himself in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War, where Israel faced strategically potentially an even greater uh, disaster. You know, potential of Arab armies driving deep into the get deep into the Galilee at some moments, and you know, potential unraveling as some Israeli leaders like Moshe Dayan feared of Israel's ability to defend itself and even survive. Full full stop. We can argue about whether or not that was ever actually on the cards. Certainly, what they believed at certain moments. Kissinger's strategy was, if I offer Israel as much as possible in terms of arms and money, I can control its behavior in order to make sure that they do not, and this is what he was trying to achieve, completely destroy the Egyptian army in the Sinai and leave it on the other side of the canal at the end of the war so, so we retain a narrow opening for peace. And so American officials looked at what happened on October the 7th and felt if we hug Israel close, if we provide it what it's asking for, and maybe even to a certain extent more in terms of weapons, we can dictate the terms of its campaign. So the White House wanted to prevent the following things happening. It wanted to prevent Israel storming into Gaza City immediately 
which certain commanders wanted to do and certain members of the Israeli government wanted to do because that kind of attack, that kind of moment, very poorly fought through without any kind of mass evacuation of citizens could have been really disastrous, they feared. So they wanted to hold Israel back from an initial assault. Then they wanted to, as far as possible, write the war plans. And they wanted Israel to learn from its experience in, from their experience rather, in Mosul and Raqqa about this kind of anti-terror assault. So it didn't end up looking like what they felt was the terrible experience that they had where they made a lot of mistakes in the Battle of Fallujah. So whilst you have this heightened rhetoric, you see is you see America behind the scenes trying to kind of slow Israel down, force it to kind of share and amend its war its war plans, and crucially vow not to do a first strike on Hezbollah in Lebanon, which was a point that was mooted by several important Israeli military uh, uh, sorry was a point that was mooted by several Israeli cabinet members, and that would have meant extending the war to Lebanon with huge amounts of kind of bombardment and violence facing facing both sides. So the promise that the United States made in order for Israel to swear not to do a first strike on Hezbollah, but Israel was fearing in those days that Hezbollah was about to strike it and was about to take advantage of the situation to do the same thing in the north, in the Galilee, was that we will take care of deterring Iran and Hezbollah, so you don't have to fear a two-front war or regional war. And we will do this by sending additional forces to the uh, Middle East in the form of the carrier groups, and we will we will warn them off. So now, a month on, where does the White House think it is in terms of its Israel policy. It thinks it's done better than it's being given credit for. Like, of course, an administration always thinks it's done better than it's being given credit for, but they think that Israel has definitely been slowed down, been slowed down by a month. Those plans have been heavily edited by the United States, and it feels that it has deterred Iran and Hezbollah from meaningfully throwing the axis of resistance into the, into the war. So I suppose why I'm potentially sceptical about that kind of justification of their behaviour from the United States, potentially either it being cynical or naive, is because they seem to be suggesting, look, Israel is going to commit atrocities anyway, so we might as well be in the tent pissing out instead of it you know, outside the tent pissing in, whatever. They're sort of saying, if we hug Israel close, we can sort of control its its actions and try and moderate them. But what it is also doing by, as you say, deterring Hezbollah and deterring Iran, is it is saying, we are going to give Israel more freedom of action. Because if Israel, you know, one of the, the material barriers to it sort of going, you know, full on, I mean, it's hard to imagine how one would go more full on in, in, in Gaza right now. But one of the the situations they really wanted to avoid was provoking Hezbollah to get involved, was provoking Iran to get involved. So they're thinking, what is the threshold we would cross where, whereby they would get involved? And and you might think that if, if, if in Israel, Netanyahu and his cabinet colleagues were thinking, well, if we 
bomb this many hospitals, then maybe Hezbollah are going to get involved or Iran are going to get involved. If America have said, well, we're going to sort out the Iranians, we're going to sort out Hezbollah, then instead of policing Israeli behavior and trying to temper it, what you're actually doing is giving Israel greater freedom of action to, to commit more atrocities than they otherwise would be able to do. When we're talking about how the White House sees it, they don't believe that atrocities are inevitable or Israel is trying to commit atrocities or that Israel bombed the Al-Akli hospitals. I mean, that's just an important point to understand where they're coming from and how they see this. You can argue with that. You can kind of push back on that. But that's, that's how they see what's happening. And they are very concerned that there could be a situation where a two-front or an even three-front war would emerge, where Israel could be, to a certain extent, overwhelmed. And if you look at Hezbollah, Hezbollah is a military level superior to Hamas. Like The scale of rockets it has is between 100 and 150,000 precision rockets. If there's a rocket war between Israel and Hezbollah, that under the Iron Dome and the associated kind of systems cannot cope. And you start to see what we've not seen, which is major destruction from indiscriminate rocket fire in Israeli cities. And everything that would mean for American politics, American public opinion, and also just America's image in the world as being able to protect its its allies. So they were really keen to to avoid that for those reasons. Hamas, and it's very important to understand what Hamas's strategy was, is Hamas believed when it undertook you know, that operation and that massacre on October the 7th, that it was it was going to ignite the region. It was going to detonate these different alliances and it was going to bring about that large-scale war. An intifada in the West Bank, a war with between Israel and Hezbollah, Iran getting involved, America potentially getting involved. And its theory of victory was that this would be so intense, Israel would not be able in a meaningful way to undertake operations in Gaza because it would be fighting on three fronts. And with its major cities devastated by Hezbollah rocket fire, the terms of the truce or, or the armistice would would be humiliating. You can argue that that was always fantasy and that that was never going to happen, but that was what they were what they were trying to do. But it looked like they could achieve some elements of that victory until this is what the United States believes. Hassan Nasrallah's speech last week, that's the leader of Hezbollah, came out and gave a much trailed uh, speech which essentially boiled down to Iran has nothing to do with this, which was taken in Washington as a statement that their strategy of deterring Iran and deterring uh, Hezbollah has, has been working. So this means that Hamas has now found itself having thought it was Saladin, the kind of Arab hero beginning the liberation of uh, Palestine from the Crusader state has actually been operating under really the logic of a suicide bomber that without thinking too far ahead in terms of the kind of strategic consequences of 
its own blast, it's facing a situation where it could, militarily at least, be completely destroyed by Israel with the permission of the uh, of the United States to eventually, at some point or another after the war, find the administration of Gaza uh, replaced by its hated rivals, the Palestinian uh, Authority. I suppose, I mean, part of your answer there, I think, was was speaking to the point I was making, which is that, you know, I, I do think the Americans like to say that what they are doing is they are limiting Israeli action. So they're sort of, they're, they're hugging their friend close to stop them committing atrocities. Now, you know, you might say the White House and, and, and Biden staff don't think atrocities are committed, being committed. But I mean, I do, and, and lots of people in the world do. So lots of, lots of potential US allies. I mean, most of the Middle East thinks that Israel is committing atrocities. And I think lots of the world can see that Israel has been able to commit those atrocities because the United States has given them a lot of backing. Right now, it's the United States, which is that backstop, which is stopping this becoming a, a regional war. So if Israel were scared of Hezbollah, if they were scared of Iran, I would imagine that they would limit the degree to which their war is, is, is killing civilians, because the more you do that, the more likely you are to provoke Iran or Hezbollah to, to intervene. And because America has basically ruled out what could have been the only disciplining mechanism to, to limit Israel, it is the United States enabling those atrocities. I suppose while, while that might not be how the White House sees it, that's how much of the world sees it. Well, that's not... That might be that is how a lot of the world see it, sees it, but that's not how they see it. They think that if a multi-front war had broken out and you had tens of thousands of Israeli citizens dying from Hezbollah rocket fire in on Jerusalem and uh, and Tel Aviv and Haifa, that that would have opened up the doors for really an almost solid belt of inter-ethnic conflict going from the gates of Gaza all the way to Beirut with levels of casualties and displacement and kind of horrors really kind of unseen in the in the region for a very, very, very long time. So they, they strongly feel that it's been critical not to have Hezbollah launch itself into the uh, it, 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 into into the war, so they're trying. They're operating a kind of in, in logic of prevention and a logic of of deterrence. There, but the interesting thing for me is what their vision is towards towards Gaza. So right now, the United States would like Israel to destroy Hamas militarily, and they would like to see a situation where. Gaza, at some point or another in the future, is handed over to the Palestinian Authority, and that the politics of renewing the Palestinian Authority, of a new leadership of the Palestinian Authority emerging, a new financial structure coming to support that body being launched, with steps being taken towards an eventual two-state solution back on the back on the cards. So yesterday, you know, Tony Blinken laid down really five principles for how he wants things to go forward. The first is that Gaza should not be a base for terrorist activity. And that means the end of Hamas's military uh, and Hamas's military leadership in its current forms. One shouldn't underestimate what he said there. But then there are a couple of statements which I think are also quite important. One is no forced displacement of the Palestinian population outside of Gaza. Two is no diminution of territory in Gaza. 
you know, free is no no reoccupation, free is no occupation of Ga- of Gaza, and all those principles together give us the indication of what that new reality the Americans would like to see in the territory looks like. I mean, yeah, it was, it was interesting those five red lines because it did it did seem on the face of it to rule out some of the more extreme ambitions that, that Netanyahu might have had or the way they might have tried to take advantage of this situation to sort of fulfill long-term aims, which is, you know, essentially emptying the Gaza Strip. They wanted to move everyone initially to, to, to the Sinai. And America has now said one of their red lines is no forcible displacement. Also, I, I thought the reduction in territory argument or, or supposed red line was very interesting because it seems that, you know, the next aim of, of Israel after they gave up on emptying Gaza was to say, well, what we're going to do is we're going to create this one kilometer buffer zone between Gaza and Israel, obviously in Gazan territory, not in Israeli territory. And that's going to make Israel more secure. And we can kind of just leave Gaza to to be this open air prison and, and, and forget about it because October the 7th isn't possible because there's this one kilometer distance between between fences. So it seems like potentially the Americans are, are limiting or, or saying they are limiting some of Israeli excesses. But at the same time, their their proposed solution to me seems kind of wholly unrealistic. So they seem to be suggesting that Israel can can bomb Gaza to smithereens. Because obviously Hamas have been in power for, for, for 17 years. It's not a sort of ISIS-like organization. It's very much embedded in, in Gazan culture and Gazan society. So they're saying you can bomb them out of existence. And then the Palestinian Authority, which is already seen as a complete lackey to the Israeli state, is going to be able to come over and assume responsibility for the Palestinians in Gaza. And they're going to sort of accept that. And then we can just go back to where we were, but instead of Hamas in control of Gaza, it will be the Palestinian Authority. Now, to me, I just can't really see how that works. It seems like there's a lot of wishful thinking going on. So those principles, those principles of, you know, Gaza not being a base of terrorist activity, no forced displacement of Palestinians, no reduction of territory, no reoccupation, and crucially, no siege conditions are the United States speaking not just to Israel, but also to the rest of the Arab world. And what that is, is a promise to Saudi Arabia, the rest of the Gulf, Jordan and Egypt, the kind of moderate allies the United States has in the in the region, is that after Hamas militarily has been destroyed, there's going to be a completely new situation in in, in Gaza, in which people's lives are going to be completely transformed. The issue that the American space with those Arab moderate allies is basically like this, in which situation A, Hamas rules Gaza and undertakes these terrorist attacks and atrocities which destabilise the whole region, is not one they like. The regime in Egypt has deep antipathy towards the Muslim Brotherhood, its whole raison d'etre is stopping that organization's politics in Egypt. Saudi Arabia has a deep dislike of that kind of politics, its current incarnation, and views it as completely antithetical to its vision of transforming the region and building a new Dubai in, in Riyadh. And those countries would like to be in situation B where Gaza is run by a kind of international, multinational force under some kind of trusteeship, has an airport, a port, is completely open, and is 
the crown jewel of a revived Palestinian authority. The Palestinian authority, of course, if it held Gaza, the symbolism of Gaza, the city of Gaza would be reunified and would be a much more powerful actor. They would like to be in that situation, but they don't know how to go from A to B without igniting the whole Middle East. So if you talk to officials in the Gulf, they'll tell you this. They'll go, they go, our main worry when we look at this campaign is that the axis of resistance that Iran could chalk up a win in Jordan, that Jordan, a majority Palestinian society, the agonies of what it's kind of going through could be too much to bear, the regime would fall. And we should remember that that regime is, to a certain extent, the last of Lawrence of Arabia's projects. It's the last of the Hashemite kingdoms established by the British Empire. It's got a half-British king with you know a lot of connections to the, the to to the UK, who's not obviously Palestinian by by background, even though his 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 wife is. And there's a fear that that monarchy could prove fragile, and then whatever came next in in Jordan could in fact be kind of militant groups, resistance groups, terrorist groups, call them whatever you want, linked to Iran. That'd be a major blow to America's grand strategy in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia's grand strategy in the Middle East to have that on its borders. And then the great fear is what happens to Egypt. And Egypt, of course, a huge society, a sleeping giant in uh, a lot of ways in Middle Eastern geopolitics, is has been quite badly run by General Sisi, at least that's the perception in the in the region. And there's fear that protests had already begun before this conflict and that the some kind of protest dynamic kick off in in, in Egypt that could undermine that regime and in a worst case scenario even bring the Muslim Brotherhood back to back to power. So those are their worries and that's why those countries have been pushing the United States to kind of curtail Israel's actions. They've said publicly they want to ceasefire, but there's a lot of double talk in the region. If Saudi Arabia could be comfortably told, in fact, we're getting to be, and we're getting there faster than than you anticipated, they're not going to they're not going to kind of make any harsher demands than they are now. But it really depends on the situation. So I suppose it's just that getting to be which I just don't I don't understand how it happens. I mean, there's going to be so much anger towards the Israelis and towards the West in Gaza. I mean, it, we, it seems that we're coming up to sort of 1% of the Gazan population dying. I mean, I, on my other show on Navarro Live, I often speak to people, you know, who've, who've lost friends, family, whole bloodlines sort of destroyed by Israeli bombing. And the idea that, you know, obviously the last port that they had in Gaza, Israel bombed anyway, but the idea that if we were to sort of conjure up with Gulf state money, a port on an airport, everyone in in Gaza is suddenly going to say, okay, you know what, we're going to give up on the struggle for, for nationhood and the struggle against Zionism. What we're going to do is, is, is say, you know, now it's time to give up on all of this and just try and get by and get a bit richer and accept more, more Western aid under the sort of overtures of, of the Palestinian Authority who, you know, have been sort of seen as a sort of corrupt organization that sold out to the Israelis long ago. The idea that that's going to be sustainable and for me to one thing that would sort of feed into that in in making the Palestinian Authority unpopular is that you know even if there were some sections of society that were okay with that there would be such a 
a broad and popular desire to sort of revolt, I would imagine, you know, for for new instantiations of a Hamas-like organization to be preparing rockets underground, right? There'd be, there'd be so much desire and pressure for that to happen that you'd need some really tough and invasive policing from the Palest- from the Palestinian Authority to stop it from emerging. And obviously, the moment it does emerge, the Israelis say, well, the Palestinian Authority have failed to keep us safe, so we're going to go back in and bomb some shit again. I mean, can you can you persuade me that that's not sort of the inevitable outcome here? I'm not. I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm trying to tell you what the American yeah. strategy. Yeah. You know, playing out of the White House, the White House sees things. So, what the solution? The White House has sent another of its top diplomats, which is Bill Burns, the head of the CIA, to the region as we as we speak. He's kind of touring the region to try and kind of sniff out these conversations about what the kind of post-war situation in Gaza could could look like. And the indications are that he is finding it quite troublesome. One of it's been reported by the Wall Street Journal that one of the American proposals, which is that Egypt could take over the military administration of Gaza in a kind of interim period before the return of the PA has been shot down publicly by the Egyptians. Egypt, of course, was in charge of Gaza before the Six Day War. I had a very unhappy memory of that that administration for its military and in terms of what it meant for Egyptian politics. There's a lot of fear in Egypt that connecting oneself to Gaza is connecting oneself to uh, a bastion of ideological extremism that could undermine Sisi's attempts to have sort of military-led stability in his country. So that's the first difficulty the uh, United States has come up, come upon, which is that Egypt's very reluctant to to lead to lead that. So, how do other officials in the region look at this? Officials in the Gulf are very keen to point out that Egypt is broke and that Egypt is facing a dramatic devaluation, currency crisis, or worse, and urgently needs uh, a bailout and. One of the questions behind the scenes in the region is Egypt's going to have to make public statement uh, that are very strong at the moment, publicly, because of public opinion, but behind the scenes, what is the Egyptian price? That's how it's seen from Riyadh or from kind of Abu Dhabi. But you know, those countries are often wrong. Those countries have often kind of misjudged events in the region. And then in terms of like what would a PA administration look like in Gaza post-war. I think there's a sense that it can't be the administration of Mahmoud Abbas, that Mahmoud Abbas himself is old, ailing, and is not credible in uh, a, lot, a lot of ways. That's what I'm kind of picking up on the diplomatic circuit. There has been interest in promoting certain Palestinian figures like Mohammed Dahlan, who's Palestinian figure and kind of politician from Gaza, who's now based in the UAE as a potential successor. You know, so they, those kind of conversations are are out there, but it doesn't seem to me that the American plan is clear enough about how we can go from A to B as it as it currently stands. And one of the reasons is that we don't know how the war on the ground is going to kind of unfold you know if you're going to get to that b the assumption is, is that israel can defeat hamas in gaza city so far 
it's been surprising to diplomats how well the Israeli operation has been going in terms of encirclement and how low its casualties have been. But these are very early stages. These are very, very early stages. You know, war is very contingent. We're not sure where we're going to be even in a few days, let alone, uh, let alone a week. That was the first half of my conversation with Ben Judah. In the second half, I pushed Ben a bit more on how realistic the US plan for the Gaza war might be and whether they're being completely honest with the world about what they actually want, what their actual plans for Gaza are or what they might be willing to let Israel get away with. And we also discussed why Saudi Arabia is still committed to normalisation with Israel, the changing political scene within Israel and how the Gaza war might impact the 2024 US presidential election. You can hear the rest of the conversation by signing up as a patron at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That's patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. My thanks again to Ben Judah. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design. (laughs) 